Good morning, everyone. That, uh, that la- Thank you, worship team, by the way. That, that last song um, actually reminds me of uh, my time in, in YWAM, um, because we, we sang it quite a lot back uh, when I was there. And, and um, I don't know how many of you know, but the founder of YWAM, Lauren Cunningham, passed away this year. And I believe it was almost, I think it was 60 years ago, almost to the day, where he got his famous um, vision of waves, waves of young people rushing up onto the shores of the world, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And um, it, it's amazing that one encounter with God, one vision from God can, can shape, um, uh, shape the world, isn't it? It's incredible. God is good. Well, uh, welcome to Seven Oaks this morning. Uh, my name's Jamie, by the way, if you're new to us, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here and going to be opening the scriptures in a moment. Um, uh, before we, we do that, I just wanted to say on Tuesday this week, we had a great service together, Tuesday night, the service of the longest night where a number of us gathered together uh, to, re- to reflect and to remember loved ones or losses that we were, we'd experienced uh, this year or maybe through, through the years. And just the time to come together and pause before the madness of the Christmas season to, to reflect together, to care for each other. And uh, it was a really good, uh, really good time. Um, on the subject of that, um, I, I do need to announce that Sharon Hoskin passed away uh, this week. Many of you knew uh, Sharon, and so I'd like us to pray for the family uh, this morning. Um, Arnie is the husband of, of Sharon. Arnie's not doing very well either. Um, uh, and so neither of them were doing very well. We want to pray for Arnie uh, and the rest of the family. So would you bow your heads with me, and we'll lift them up to the Lord. Father, we, we give thanks for the life of Sharon Hoskin, and I want to pray uh, today that you would uh, minister into the life of Arnie and the rest of the family that you would bring comfort and grace at this difficult season as they enter into Christmas with a very recent loss like that, this will be heavy for them. And so we ask, oh Jesus, that you would be very close and that you would draw them into your embrace, that you would love them and, and help them to mourn well and to remember well and to remember fondly. And this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. January 6th, uh, it's a Saturday, I believe, January 6th, uh, will be the memorial service for Sharon, and we'll give you details when we get closer to the time. We don't, we don't have all the details worked out yet. Um, I want to give you another advance heads up uh, of something that is coming, uh, not until February. And you might think, well, that's a long way off, and it is a long way off. Uh, but the nature of what I want to share with you uh, maybe requires some prep for you and some thought and even some, uh, some, some kind of working at some things. But uh, coming up on the screen for you is um, uh, Seven Oaks Got Talent. Look at that. I wondered if it should be Seven Oaks Got Talent, question mark. <laughs> but then I thought that was a little mean at Christmas time. So, so no, Seven Oaks Got Talent, we have talent. And uh, you, you may remember a, uh, an, uh, a few years ago, we used to do a, a talent show called Montage, where we've rebranded it. And um, they won't let me do my Simon Cowell, though. <laughs> I'm really good at that. I'm really good at criticizing people. 
Um, so, so anyway, I'm not allowed, but, uh, but, so there won't be any judges. Um, but we, we used to do this thing called Montage, where we would have an old school talent show, and we've rebranded it for a new day, and we're going to invite you to consider if you have a talent that you would like to share with a church family on Family Day, BC Family Day, so I think we're going to do it on the Sunday, Sunday evening, uh, I think it's February 18th, something like that. Uh, we're going to have a talent show in here, we'll have tables in this room, tables and chairs, we'll have some food, and we'll hang out together and just have some fun to express church family uh, together. So uh, you can do whatever you want. We've had um, dancing and singing and spoken word and science experiments and all kinds of different things that people have done on the stage. Uh, So have a think about it. Uh, You can register online right on our webpage, right on the front page. You can register and let us know that you intend to do something uh, and what it is, and we'll get back to you and begin to form a bit of a program. Um, But also, if you're sitting there thinking, well, I have something that I'm talented with, but it isn't something I perform on a stage, so maybe you're a painter, or you create some kind of craft or pottery or something, whatever. Uh, we also will have display tables for you to be able to display um, your talent as well. So, uh, so that's coming up. Uh, be thinking about it, and uh, we'll have a great time uh, together. So last Sunday, we began our teaching series uh, for, for the Advent season, for the four Sundays of Advent. And so we are at uh, week number two. And the Advent season, of course, is all of that waiting, anticipating, looking for, hoping for the coming Christ child. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at Jesus through the lens of the Alliance Theological Distinctive, the Fourfold Gospel. And I mentioned to you last week that this, this is just a paradigm it's just a list of kind of things that the Alliance historically has held up as important, and we think these four things are really, really important, but it's not exhaustive of everything we think about Jesus, uh, but it's just a paradigm, and we thought, you know what, it'd be a good paradigm for us to kind of preach through this season. So last Sunday, we looked at the first fold, which is Jesus as Savior, Jesus our Savior, And today, um, you probably picked up already through the readings, uh, we're looking at Jesus as sanctifier. And and while Jesus as Savior is probably more familiar for most people, we think about the idea of salvation and Jesus saving us and the cross and how that's connected to, to Jesus' salvation, that might be more familiar. Jesus as sanctifier maybe takes a little bit more work, and maybe we're not quite sure where that is, so we're going to dive into that and look at that today. Uh, so we're doing a bit of theology, so, uh, so I hope you're ready for that. If I was to reach into my pocket and, and get a coin out, and I was to flip that coin in the air, and it was to spin, and I was to catch it, and then do that and put it on my hand, I think everybody in the room would know what I'm doing, Right? That's a, that's a cultural thing that we do. You'd say, okay, so there's some kind of decision needs to be made. We're not sure what decision to make. So we say, well, let's flip a coin. And if it's heads, then we'll make this decision. If it's tails, then we'll make that decision. And so you see it a lot in sports, actually. Um, uh, it happens in sports, in, in, in the sport that I love, um, uh, English football. We, we often do that where they'll flip a coin. And depending on whether it's heads or tails, the captain of the team gets to choose which uh, end they start, that kind of thing. So you're all fairly familiar uh, with that. But, but what we're doing is we're flipping a coin. It's one coin. It's the same coin, but it has two different sides. One coin, but two sides. And I want you just to hold that, that visual kind of in your head. Just park it for a little bit, and we'll come back to it as we talk about sanctification. But let me start by saying this. I believe that saying 
Jesus is our sanctifier is a better thing than saying sanctification is important. Or it's a better thing than, than saying um, sanctification is good theology. Jesus as sanctifier. I like the Alliance approach to it, and I'll tell you why that is in a little bit. But the first thing for us to do, I think, is try to understand what this is. Because there's maybe some of you in the room who are like, I don't even know what sanctification is. I don't know that word. I'm not familiar with that word. We don't use that word in, word in culture. What is a sanctifier? And maybe there's some of, some of you in the room who's, who sort of heard the word and you, you vaguely know, but it's a little bit fuzzy and it's a bit vague. And so we're going to try to define it. And we're going to do it through the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus 11, verse 34, 44, sorry, coming up on the screen for you. And it says this, for I am the Lord your God, sanctify yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. And then he goes on to, to list, you shall not defile yourself, and, and so on. In the Old Testament, the idea of sanctification was intimately connected to holiness. So the idea was to set something or someone aside from the ordinary or from the profane in order to have a division to set it aside to be holy. It was all about ritual purity and righteousness and so on. It could be an object, like the tabernacle. It could be an animal, like an unblemished lamb. Or it could be a person, like one of the priests. The idea, however, was to set something apart, separating it out from other things, putting it aside for holy purposes. By the time we get to the New Testament, it changes a little bit because it's not so much now about objects and animals because the tabernacle by then, it was the temple, became kind of less important as a central symbol to the church. It kind of moved to the side. So it wasn't so much about a place anymore. And it certainly wasn't about animals because once Jesus had died and been resurrected, he was the once for all sacrifice. There was no need to have unblemished lambs anymore or whatever and bring them for sacrifice. That, that also had been pushed aside. So now it was exclusively about people. But different to the Old Testament, it wasn't just about certain types of people like priests from uh, the tribe of Levi but it was actually now for anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. And so coming up for you is 1 Peter 2, 9. It says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy, sanctified, set-apart nation, God's own people in order that he may proclaim the, the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here in Peter's letter is this idea of the priesthood of all believers, not just certain Levites. Here's the idea of us being a race together, a nation together that are set apart for the purposes of God, set apart for holiness and righteousness and purity and goodness and all of those things. Coming up is 1 Corinthians 6.11. And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed, you were sanctified, there's that word, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Paul is writing to Christians in the city of Corinth, the church in Corinth, and he's saying to them, this is what you used to be, you used to be pagan Gentiles, some of you, 
some were actually Jews. But this is what you used to be. Now this is what you are. And the implication is now you've come to Jesus, you've commit your way to him, you've become his disciple, you've received his salvation. This is what you are now. And he says three things. You're justified, declared righteous before God, gotten off scot-free. You've been forgiven. You're justified before him in a, in a legal kind of a sense. You've been washed, cleansed. Your sin has been forgiven. And you've actually been cleansed and washed clean of all of that. And the third thing, which is actually the second he mentions, is you are sanctified. You and I, in this room, if you know Jesus, just like the Corinthians, as well as being forgiven and justified and granted grace and adopted into the family of God and redeemed and saved and all of those wonderful things, are also set aside for holy purposes. You are sanctified. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Okay, you might say to me, I get what sanctification means now. I understand what you're saying theologically from the Old Testament and the New Testament, how it shifted and how it changed. Cool, except to be honest with you, Jamie, I don't feel very holy. And I would say to you, yeah, neither do I. And you might say to me, well, uh, okay, but sometimes I sin. One of the passages that was read for us earlier was, God will make us blameless before on the, on the coming of Christ. Blameless. I don't feel blameless. Sometimes I sin. And I would say to you, I know, so do I. And then you might say to me, well, well, if I'm honest, there are certain times in my life where I don't feel like I've been particularly morally or ethically any better than my unbelieving neighbor. And I'm like, I hear you. So there's a disconnect between the fact that we are called to be a holy nation, sanctified, set apart for God, and the fact that we're, we're not. We don't feel like that. We don't live like that. Our lived experience is different. So what do we do with that? Well, we're going to talk about it. The late theologian, we're going to look at it from a, a different angle now. The late theologian and former Regent College professor Stanley Grenz, in his book, Theology for the Community of God, quotes the old evangelical to the answer are you saved? And the answer is this, oh, to the question, are you saved? The answer is this, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Who's ever heard that before? Hands up. Okay, a lot of you have heard that before. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. The quote comes from the idea of the process of salvation, that it's actually more of a continuum, more of a process than it is simply a one-off moment decision that essentially grants me a free ticket to heaven that I hold up now because I'm saved, but what I do is I tuck it in my pocket and I say, cool, I'm saved, and then I largely ignore it for the rest of my life, and I largely ignore God for the rest of my life, and maybe I'll go to church from time to time, but it doesn't really matter because what's gonna happen is right at the last minute, I'm gonna take it out of my pocket and say, aha, I've got it, St. Peter, let me in the pearly gates. This is my fire insurance. That's a terrible way to think about salvation. It's a horrible way. It's an unbiblical way to think about salvation. But it's not to say that there isn't a moment in history, a decisive moment in someone's life where they stepped over the line of faith for the first time as they repented and expressed faith in Jesus that actually they can hang on to. And I know some people grow up in the church and they can't really... Can't really pinpoint a day, and that's okay. 
But there's often a, a decisive moment where we come to faith in Jesus, August 23rd, 1996. I was sitting on the end of my bed. It still brings tears to my eyes. And I gave my life to Jesus. That's my decisive moment. It's when I got my ticket. Okay, so that's, that's this past idea, and that's the first part of the answer. I have been saved, historically. I've been saved, and it's true. However, the dynamic of salvation includes the idea of me being progressively saved. That it isn't just a ticket that I tuck away in my pocket, but it's actually a ticket I hold up and now live my life and center my life around it. It's something that I center the course of my life around, that that salvation decision now works itself out in my life as I live before Jesus. As I belong to the family of God, well, how does it work itself out? Well, I worship now. I didn't used to worship. I worship. I pray. I talk to God. I do my best to listen to him. I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about all of us. I listen to God. I, I, I try to grow in my knowledge of him. I center my life around biblical principles. I make decisions according to the will of God to the best of my ability to uh, discern. I give of my resources uh, to the church and to missions agencies and so on. And, and I give of my time to the expansion of the kingdom. I serve. I witness to others around me so they too uh, may share in, in this great joy, etc., etc., etc. In short, I follow Jesus now. I, I, I'm a disciple of Jesus now. He's my Lord, and I follow him. And it's being worked out in me progressively. And that is this idea of I am being saved. I've been saved, but I'm also being saved. And the third part of the process of salvation is the idea of the final eschatological, don't worry about that word, end times kind of moment, completion of my salvation. When I die or Jesus returns, whichever comes first, I will be finally and completely saved in all that that means. When God brings me to reflect perfectly the goal of my conversion. And that's the future part in the future sense of, and I will be saved. That is the dynamic of salvation that is more of a biblical way to look at it. And people sometimes get upset a little bit with that and think, well, how can you be assured of your salvation then if it's not, I'm fully, you are saved. It's just um, my point about the ticket, you, you can't live like that. You can have absolute assurance of salvation, but it is something that is working in and through you. And we'll come to some more of that a little bit later. So there's a past, present, and future dynamic to salvation. If you want to use some other words to help you remember it, we might say conversion, sanctification, and glorification. I was converted, my conversion in the past, I have been saved. My sanctification, an ongoing process, I am being saved. My glorification, a future moment where I will be saved in all of that wonderful truth and reality. Um, you might ask, why am I spending so much time on this? I'm spending time on it because I think it's one thing to understand what sanctification is, but it's another thing to understand, well, where does it fit in and what, is it, what does it look like? Is, is it just some dusty theological word that we just kind of read and try to understand or does it actually work itself out in our lives? It's the latter. It works itself out in our lives. So is it something that God does in us? 
he sanctifies us? Or is it something that we do? Just be more holy, will you? Which is it, or is it both? Well, I want to talk to you about the two sides of the coin of sanctification. Remember that image? You flip the coin, it spins, it lands. Sanctification is one thing, but there's actually two sides to the coin. And the first one is positional sanctification. What that means is it refers to our position before God with regard to holiness and righteousness. The position we enjoy because of our new status in Christ. We are declared to be holy and set apart as holy, not because we are perfectly holy. Like I said earlier, all of us would say, well, I don't feel very holy. No, but it's because we belong to God in Christ. So it's an objective reality. It is a standing in righteousness, ours because of the grace of God extended to us in Christ, applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And we receive that reality solely by faith. I'm fully sanctified in Jesus. And that's true. God looks at us and he declares us to be holy because we are covered by the blood of Jesus. And if you want to know that it's not just my opinion, let's look at a couple of scriptures First Thessalonians 5.23 says this, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's about positional sanctification. He's doing it entirely in you. It's all his work. May God do it. Uh, again, 1 Corinthians 6.11, we looked at it a, a few minutes ago. And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. Again, it's this idea of God doing something in us, to us, for us. But if we just left it there, we would only have one side of the coin. And we would only have a half understanding of sanctification. And it would get us into trouble And we've had trouble with groups of people, historically, who have said, I'm saved and God's grace is so much and he's sanctified me so much and he's covered me with the blood so much that when he looks at me, all he sees is holiness. So actually, it doesn't matter how I live. I can do what I want. I can live as I want. It doesn't matter because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. Well, no, 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 no. (laughs) That's only one side of the coin. The second side of the coin is conditional sanctification. Rather than a fixed objective condition, this is more of a variable sliding scale of how we are actually conforming to the image of Christ in our lives. It's about character development and measuring up to kingdom ideals. It's the actual working out of holy attitudes and actions within our lives. It's growing in Christ's likeness. It's answering the question, how are you doing spiritually? And the idea is that we should be moving forward and growing and being transformed over our life. But how many of our lives look like this, up and to the right, all the time? No. Most of us, it's kind of like this, isn't it? A little bit more? Or it's, it's one step forward and it's a couple of steps back. There is times of growth. There are seasons where we're lying fallow. In our faith, there are times where we even 
um, declining in our faith. But those of us who are long enough in the spiritual tooth know that often those times of dryness and barrenness and wilderness are actually arenas in which God is working out something deeper in us and we're actually going to find, oh, I, I did grow in that time. But the idea is that we grow over time in our lives as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit who wants to act in us and through us and do things in us to bring transformation. We posture ourselves towards God, sanctifying work in our lives. We put ourselves in in environments that help us to grow. That's what you're doing this morning. We all put ourselves in this environment. None of you are made to come to church. We do it because we want to be in an environment where we can worship and and centralize around Scripture and remind ourselves of who we are and and listen to God and grow deeper and, 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 and understand the Scriptures more. We put ourselves in environments for growth. Church isn't the only place. Sunday morning isn't the only place we do that. It's about commitment to discipleship and the spiritual disciplines. It's about a humble approach to be willing to change rather than a stubborn holding on to sinful, prideful patterns of being. So there's a side that God does in us, and there's a part that we do. Now, we have to be really careful with the language of we do, because it's actually all God doing the sanctifying work in us. The we do is more that we give God access. We position ourselves towards Him. We put ourselves in those environments. We don't make ourselves holy. You have no hope of making yourself holy any more than you have of saving yourself. It's God that makes us holy, but we position ourselves for it and allow Him. He won't just force His way in. We have the the choice of active participation or stubborn rebellion. So this idea then of it being a process and not just something God just zaps us with, um, is found in Philippians. Paul says in Philippians 3, 12 to 14, not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I've made it on my own, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead of me, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ. So it's a process as well. So we've seen scriptures that seem to suggest positional sanctification, and we've seen scriptures that suggest conditional sanctification, and they're both true. Two sides of the coin. There, of course, with the latter one is a, a, a great danger. And the danger is this, that we turn the working of sanctification in us into a list of boxes we have to tick off in order to be good Christians. Check this, 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 and now you're good. And the church has fallen into that trap for for eons. We end up creating a holiness code, a list of boxes for people to be proper Christians. And some of those boxes might be really good boxes, but some of them are not necessarily biblical or theological or even related to Christian spirituality as much as they are cultural values. And we could talk together about what those are. 
There's lots of them. They're just what the generation at the time held up as important, but actually they're not biblical at all. They're just things we think are right, and people need to look like this or do this or act like this or, or go to this place or not go to this place, and we have all these huge Pharisaic rules, and we create a new religiosity that looks good on the outside but doesn't do much to transform the inside. That's the danger. The opposite danger, however, is that we react to the list of boxes so much that we pendulums from the other side and we say, I'm not going to have any boxes. And we do nothing. And that is also a problem. We go years without any noticeable change in our character, our attitude, the softening of our hearts, the movement towards humility, the obedience to Christ, practice in spiritual disciplines, on and on the list goes. We don't seem to change. That can happen for decades. So we have to learn to walk this line between those two extremes with great wisdom. Whereby we avoid ticking off boxes for the sake of our religious urge to appear holy. But we need to be walking with great openness towards God and the Spirit in our lives. And there's no way around that other than posturing ourselves towards him and practicing the disciplines and, and, and loving Jesus and being in the right environments and so on. The key to all of this stuff, church family, is union with Christ. That's the key. Earlier in the message I said to you, I think it's a much better thing to say, Jesus is our sanctifier, than it is to say sanctification is a good thing, or it's good theology, or we should be working it out in our lives. And this is the reason, because Jesus is our sanctifier, and we must have union with him in order for both positional and conditional sanctification to be working out in our lives. He's the sanctifier, and union with him is the key to all of it, as opposed to dusty religion or doing nothing. Union with Jesus Christ. The last scripture I'm going to read to you is one of my favorites in all the Bible. John 15, 1 to 5. I am the true vine, this is Jesus, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You've already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Union with Jesus. I'm the vine and you're the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. What a great way to sum up a whole bunch of things I've said. In just a few words, abide in me as I abide in you, union with Jesus. So by way of application today, friends, I'm going to ask you a bunch of rhetorical questions. You don't have to answer these to me. Um, but maybe you want to scribble them down in a, on a piece of paper in the corner of your Bible, whatever. And maybe these are some questions that over the Christmas season when things calm down and you get a bit of time, maybe it's snowing outside, you want to sit by your tree with some snacks and whatever and just hang out. And maybe you want to get out these questions and just ponder them for half an hour and think about them. Question number one, how is it with your soul today? And, and you, you're only answering it to yourself so you can be really honest. 
You don't have to make up a religious answer you think is right. How is it with your soul today? How are you doing spiritually? Quite a similar question. Would you say that this last year has been marked with growth, lying fallow, or even decline? Be honest. Are you regularly posturing yourself towards God? Are you in community with other Christians who are sharpening you? My, my minister from when I was first saved in my church back in England always used to say, you know what? Um, people say they don't need church or they don't need community or whatever to be a Christian, and that's technically true. However, it's a little bit like, you know, when you have loads of coals on a fire or on a barbecue or something, and they have that beautiful orange glow, and then if you were to take some tongs and take one of them out and then put it over there, and then not long, and it just turns black again. You take them out, and you lose the fire. So important to be in Christian community where we sharpen one another and urge one another and pray for one another. So are you in community? Are you engaging in spiritual disciplines for growth, or are you just going through life being the master of your own destiny? Most of us know our character flaws, don't we? How are you doing? Are you making progress with those flaws, or have you just given up by saying, well, that's just the way that I am? There's this kind of there's popular phrases out there today that people say, well, I, I'm, this is just who I am. This, you know, I'm just being my authentic self. This is who I am. And I get it. I get why people say that. I understand why we need to accept each other, and that's, that's great. But just be who I am. That's the problem. You're being who you are. Right? I'd much rather be more like Jesus. Don't just be your authentic self. Your authentic self is a fallen sinner. Try to be more like Jesus. So let me encourage you then to take some time to consider some of these questions and make honest assessment. And maybe you want to make a goal for the new year. We all do those kinds of things, don't we? What spiritual discipline am I going to practice this year? Well, I don't really know many. I know a couple. You know, there's some people around here. You can ask. I got lots. I'll tell you. Or go and ask somebody else, one of the other pastors. We can, we can tell you some new spiritual disciplines if you're interested. Or, or are you going to find your way into community? You know, one of the things I've found over the years uh, of being involved in, in church ministries, we have this idea in our heads that to be in Christian community, what we need to be in a small group or a care group or a triad or something, what we really need, though, is a lot of time to prep and get ready for those meetings, and we need to have a leader, and we must have someone who's a bit of a Bible scholar who can do the lesson and all that, and it's like, you actually don't. It's not a bad thing to have that. If you've got that, Cool. But you know what? It can be as simple as this. Going and asking two other people, maybe three of you, and saying, can we just meet together once a month and share our lives and pray for each other? It's not that hard. And it will transform you. So in January, one of you shares their life story and the other two pray for you. In February, you switch to the second person. In March, you switch to the third. There you go. I've just organized your first three months of small group. You're welcome. Like, it's not that hard. And you might find it is a transforming experience. You will find it's a transforming experience. And over time, what happens as your souls get knit together as spiritual friends is that you begin to start to share some of the things in your life that you, maybe you've never shared with anybody else. And you start getting to the deep soul work. And you can you study the Bible and all those other things as well, of course. You can absolutely do that. But it can be as simple as that. 
do you want to be a coal that is a glowing orange or do you want to be a black coal that's gone cold? So let me encourage you to consider your posture as you think about Jesus, a sanctifier. Amen. Worship team, let's uh, sing together.